Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dan Moran. Hi Dan. Hi Mike, thanks for having me. So, absolute pleasure. How are you sir? I am doing very well. It's finally warm here on the east coast of the US so uh, I'm enjoying a little bit of nice sunshine today. I'm hoping that warm weather goes a little bit further east to me. I Fingers crossed. I'll try to send it over. I might get a day sometime in August. <laughs> I used to, you know, I used to live in the UK just a little bit. I lived there for six months during college, and I, so I've experienced your lovely weather. Lots of rain, not much sunshine. Yep. Lots of yep. clouds. So, Mr. Moran, what do you like to be known for? What do I like to be known for? Well, my, my day job uh, is as a senior editor at Macworld, which I am very proud of, um, and I've been there for almost seven years now. Um, and to me, when I started, you know, I, I had read Macworld as a you know teenager, and uh, my goal had at some point to always end up on the, the back page of the magazine, which was where the op-ed columns were. And for a long time, it was uh, it was Guy Kawasaki for a long time, um, and then they occasionally had other people in and out, including Douglas Adams. And like the idea for me to like, wow, I could share the same space that Douglas Adams uh, was in. That's that was pretty cool. So that was kind of a driving factor. So I, I would say I'm pretty proud of that. Um, in addition, I, uh, I do some podcasts. Uh, Jason Snell and I have a show called Clockwise that we do over at TechHive. And I have the uh, both, I'm a regular panelist on The Incomparable, which has been an absolute delight for the many years that has now been running. And I uh, recently started a, a new podcast with my colleague Lex Friedman, erstwhile colleague, I should say, um, called Not Playing. And yeah, so I, I, all those sort of creative endeavor, endeavors, I think, come together well as sort of the, the whole package. But secretly, my, my secret desire has always been to be a, a fiction writer. So that's kind of like my sideline, but I haven't quite gotten to the point of being known for that yet. So where does your interest in writing specifically come from? Is this something that was part of your life when you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I remember writing as basically as far back as I could remember how to write. I was writing stories. Uh, in first grade, I remember writing stories about anthropomorphic cats um, on like this yellow lined paper that we had. Um, and that was sort of my first entree into it. Because as a kid, I'd always like imagining coming up with stories. And so once I actually knew how to write things down, I was like, oh, this is great. Now I don't have to just remember all these things. Um, so it pretty much was a constant part of my life starting at, you know, age what, seven or so, on to the present day. And I, I majored in English in college. And uh, I spent a lot of time working on various projects, many of which went nowhere for many years of my life until I ended up at Macworld. So uh, it's just, it's, it's hard to say, you know, in some ways how it started exactly because it's just, it's always been there for me. Um, and I loved reading um, as a kid. I, I read, I devoured books. Um, and pretty much anything else I could get my hands on that seemed interesting to read. Uh, and for me, that that derives largely from the fact that both of my parents are librarians. And so I had a lot of access to books growing up. Um, and in my family, there's been a strong tradition of uh, of the written word and the and reading books. I have many other relatives who are librarians or teachers. Um, if you go back far enough, somewhere in my distant lineage, the uh, the author Harriet Beecher Stowe, who famously wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, is a distant relative somewhere in there. So I, I like to credit maybe that for a little bit of the, the writing in the DNA. It's in your blood. Apparently, yeah. So maybe I should get that looked at. I don't know if that's a, there's a medical test for that. but <laughs> You have ink running through your veins, Marn. That, that is not healthy. I do not recommend <laughs> that. <laughs> did you, when you were at school, did you study anything or have any like extracurricular activities that focused around this? Like were you on the school newspaper? 
Uh, not a lot, actually. I tried to start a school newspaper in junior high school, and that really didn't go anywhere because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and in high school, I, I don't think I really had much in the way of outlets for that. A lot of it was just uh, what writing I did was either for school or just for sort of my own personal uh, enjoyment. Um, in college, I dabbled a little bit. I, I worked on a literary magazine for a little bit and actually had two uh, poems published in my like junior or senior year. And I also, in a, uh, I'll just, I'll go ahead and just sort of lay all the embarrassing stuff out on the table here. Was I was also the editor of the newsletter for my Japanese animation club. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I did, that was sort of my closest experience to actually producing some sort of publication was I had, for about a year and a half, I every week published a, you know, four or five page like pamphlet that got handed out at our at our showings so that was that was my entree into the journalistic life you mentioned that you'd uh that you're, you you've always wanted to be a fiction writer have you written any fiction have you had anything published or self-published uh at the moment i've had nothing published um i have written quite a great deal i think under my belt i have about five um, five completed novels, as well as a couple other that are sort of in the like halfway completed stage. Um, and I've written a couple short stories here and there. So far, nothing published. A lot of stuff out on you know submission. Um, I've worked a little bit. Well, I don't have official representation. I've been working a little bit with an agent to try and get one of these books to print. Um, I haven't. <laughs> I did do a little bit of self publishing in high school. Uh, my friend, uh, my best friend, and I started a. Um, online and easing, as they called them at that point. Uh, so this was probably about 1994, uh, and we first started distributing it on a uh, on a local bulletin board, like a dial-in BBS. Um, and then later on, we actually had a website for a while. And this was basically grown out of our, both of our frustration as like you know 14 year old boys. We couldn't get like short stories published in certain places. I tried to submit a a Star Wars fanfic to the uh, mm-hmm. the people who wrote the Star Wars uh, role playing game, and I was really excited. And they they said I was too young because I so I uh, was bummed about that. And so like you know what we're going to start our own thing, um, and that that ran for about four years or so. So that's probably the closest wow. I have to self publishing. I have a couple stories in that. Does it exist uh, anywhere on the internet? If you try very hard you and you actually know the URL, you can probably find it on archive.org, but uh, it's the site is now long defunct. Although, if you Google, there are apparently some references to it in like lists of dead e-zines. Um, so it does, it's, it's traces of it are still out there. Um, but yeah, as of yet, I'm still working on the official uh, publishing racket, but it's a, it's a long slog as all published authors know. What was your earliest memories of, of using a computer? How far back does that go for you? Um, pretty early. Uh, I would say when I was probably, I would say like the mid-80s, so I was probably in the, the five or six range. All my earliest memories are all from all the other people's computers. We didn't have a computer in the house until I was older. Um, and so I spent a lot of time at friends' houses playing on their computers um, so I remember using a friend's computer to play some sort of text, you know, adventure type thing, command line text adventure, uh, when I was probably five or six. Uh, and I remember briefly using my dad's computer at his office when I would go in, um, and I would like write stories on there and try to save them on discs. And then I, I have no idea what would happen to them because we had no place to to read them at home. Um, and the first time I remember using a Mac was at my friend Paul's house. 
um, he had a SE30, and we used to play games on it, like when we were hanging out for an evening or something like that. We would play all these old, great classic Mac games, like uh, I trying to think it was a Shuffle Puck Cafe, and uh, there was one called like uh, Captain Magneto or something like that, uh, Load Runner, stuff like that. And so I, I really have a very distinct memory of using computers all at other other people's houses, sort of preying on their computers and being fascinated and constantly badgering my parents that I really needed a computer. It was important, you see. I do schoolwork, all those all those great things. Have you stayed with the Mac ever since? Yeah, the first computer I got was a uh, Mac LC, probably around 1991, 92. Uh, and I've had Macs consistently since then. Um, I have owned... I want to say maybe two PCs, although I think both of them were ones I built myself out of uh, spare components, mainly because I wanted to play Windows games. But yep. I don't think I've ever bought a PC for myself. My parents had one for a while because it was sort of a castaway from my dad's office. And so, you know, they, they when I left for college and took the Mac with me, they they wanted a computer in the house. So we had them on a PC for a little while. But that got very frustrating after a while, so we replaced it with an iMac in, without too much fanfare. When did a career in journalism seem like something that interested you? Like, when did you think this could be something I could do? Well, you know, I never set out to be a journalist, I think, is the interesting thing. And I, it sort of was in a background idea of something that I could do, but it wasn't really a priority. I didn't really study journalism. I didn't, you know, get a, a, a postgraduate degree or anything. Um, but I think the key thing for me was that right after I left college, um, I went back to my summer job, which was basically fixing computers. I had done a lot of IT work at my uh, dad's workplace at the library he worked at. And so I worked there for a while and decided, well, that wasn't really a long-term job. There wasn't really a, a place for me there. So I applied to a couple other things. And this was at Harvard. So uh, uh, there's a lot of opportunities there, which is nice. And I ended up working at a small research program there where they did uh, humanitarian policy and they needed a computer guy um, to do sort of a, a variety of things, including IT stuff, web development, and the like. And so I joined this little 20-person program or so, and there was another tech guy, and he and I worked together, and we built a bunch of web portals, which was really big at the time. And I kind of enjoyed that and aspects of it, but a year and a half in or so, I think I just started to get really disenchanted with the, the job and realized that there were these projects I was working on, and I would be working on them for the rest of my life unless I did something. So I, I distinctly remember sitting down one day and writing a list of all the things like pie, you know, pie in the sky, whatever you want to do. Here's I'm going to write a list of everything that I want to try or everything that seems like a fun job to me. And I got to the end of it and realized almost all of them had to do with writing, which was what I wanted to do. Um, and of the ones on there, some of them were pretty far-fetched. It was like, write for the Daily Show. Like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen, but it's a, you know, shoot high. Uh, and writing for Macworld was actually one of the things on the list. So I actually, I actually emailed Jason Snell because I was a Macworld reader and asked him if he had any tips for getting into the, that line of work. And he very graciously wrote me back and suggested um, that I submit some stuff over to Tidbits, um, which, of course, is a long-running uh, Apple website, and, you know, wish me luck. And I said, great. And I promptly did not do that because I was very lazy. 
Um, and eventually I ended up quitting that job and actually uh, went over to Ireland for about a month uh, deciding I needed to get away from things. And then I spent some time traveling around after that. And I was working on fiction writing and, and stuff like that. But I don't think even journalism had really even lodged itself into my brain at that point. I was just mainly interested in finding some way that I could write and hopefully make a living off that. So I was casting about for a bunch of different opportunities. And one of those was I, I decided I'd always wanted to go to Macworld Expo. I had gone once as a... Uh, I don't know, 13 or 14 year old when it was still in Boston. Um, but then it, it had quickly moved away. And when it came back, it wasn't quite the same. So I'd always wanted to go to the one in San Francisco. So I decided since I was taking all this time off, I would travel out to San Francisco and I would go to the conference and have a good time and see the keynote and do all that sort of stuff. And uh, that was kind of my, <laughs> my entree into the world of journalism. So I want to get back to Macworld shortly, but there's kind of like an, an overarching thing that I wanted to ask. So you mentioned that like, you've been working in, with Macworld for for about seven years. So you're approaching kind of 10 years in the journalism industry, especially in the tech industry. So I assume that you've probably seen uh, quite a bit of change. Like, how do you think that that's affected you? Like, do you, have you seen a change in as things have moved more to online? Has this affected you positively or negatively? Because, you know, when you started with Macworld, I guess it was magazine first, right? Yeah, there was still, it was very weird when I started because I had actually, I actually started as a freelancer working for their Mac user blog, which they had specifically designed because they were seeing a lot of these, you know, a lot of these other blogs like the unofficial Apple weblog and things like that that did very well. And they decided we should be in this space because we're still doing, you know, kind of news service stuff online, but we're really focused on print. And so I came out of that whole online journalism thing because I was I was working as a freelancer. I was just writing blog posts. Um, and so I think I was kind of lucky to be in on an on a wave of, you know, sort of riding that wave of online becoming the predominant form of journalism. And it's only increased since then. I mean, we do pretty much all our stuff online first these days, um, with the exception of a couple of things like features. And um, the magazine is is sort of a compilation of a lot of that stuff. And it's a lot harder these days to put together a monthly magazine when, you know, news breaks uh, every minute, every day, every second on Twitter uh, and on the web and on blogs, RSS feeds and all of that. There's It's hard to put together a monthly magazine that still feels like it's relevant. Um, and that's that's been a big challenge and a big shift in I think the way that the industry has worked. But it, you know, the, at the same time, the I was so steeped in online culture, both from my experiences blogging and from my experiences doing tech work, that the news, the magazine aspect of it always seemed kind of alien to me. I didn't really understand the whole deal about putting together section. I didn't I didn't know. I had not been trained in journalism. I didn't put together print publications really. Um, so I feel like. It's been nice because I came in at exactly the right time so that I would always be comfortable sort of with uh, the prevailing technology at that point uh, in terms of just, you know, moving more and more to the online side of the story. But it, it's definitely been interesting to watch things change. I think social networking in particular has made a really big deal, uh, has been a really big deal for journalism in the last few years as Twitter and Facebook and all these various services get more and more popular um, it's really changed the way that publications work in terms of how your stories get passed around. Um, it used to be we all kind of 
had our RSS feeds or we had our few websites that we checked, like our bookmarks, and we'd sort of see what's going on there. But now so much of it has this viral profile where it's somebody shares something and then it gets clicked on and retweeted and liked and share, reshared on Facebook and stories that you didn't think were necessarily super interesting uh, suddenly take on this huge new life. We have a, we have a piece on uh, creating a bootable Maverick installation or something like that um, from last year that's still like one of our top stories every day. And it's fascinating to me how that works. So yeah, I, I think it's been for me such an interesting time to come into this field and just uh, in some ways I felt like I was starting from ground zero even as the whole industry was was approaching a reset of the way that they did things. So it's been a nice synchronicity. So how did you get into to writing about Apple and the Mac? Did you have any jobs or work before Macworld? Um, not so much. Like I said, I, my main thing was was doing sort of web development. I was a PHP coder. Uh, I built websites and I fixed computers. Um, and I didn't really have, uh, you know, even though my formal training was, you know, in English. And I spent a lot of time in college writing papers and doing projects um, it really didn't necessarily directly feed me into a career in journalism. Uh, but I think that it helped that not only had I spent a lot of time, obviously, as a kid and as a, a teenager and young adult writing just frequently, not only for school, but for myself, uh, combining that sort of writing skill that I developed over all those years with uh, a pretty in-depth knowledge of technology, I think really helped me. Uh, get a position in the tech industry because it meant that not only I didn't have to really be brought up to speed on how technology worked. There's a lot of great writers out there who don't necessarily have super deep technical skills. And then there's a lot of people who have super deep technical skills that don't necessarily have good writing. Uh, and I wouldn't say I necessarily have the best writing or the best technical skills, but I get sort of a happy medium with the two of those. So I think that really helped. Did you have your own blog or anything independent to kind of that kept you writing? Before. I had a couple. I, I'm terrible with blogs. I, I feel like I start them really, really well-intentioned, and then they sort of peter off. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a bit uh, when I was around 20 or so, a few friends of mine, uh, and I started a web comic, and we sort of, I wrote the, the accompanying news blog post whenever we put up a new comic that was just sort of a free-form rambling about interesting things I'd read um, and I, I did write a couple other in, like standalone pieces for that, including one. I remember when um, Steve Jobs introduced the Titanium PowerBook G4. I wrote this whole long uh, ode to how awesome I thought that computer was. So that was probably the first sort of Apple blog post I ever wrote. Um, I, I had a couple other projects like that where I had blogs that I sort of shared with some friends where we would post things. And I tried to have sort of a standalone blog where I was just putting up things while I was uh, right after I got out of college. But I was just I was so bad at keeping it updated. Even now, I, I have a I have a blog that I started, uh, I want to say, maybe a year ago or so. And uh, it's pretty empty. I, I usually forget <laughs> to post to it. It's so much work. <laughs> I'm terrible at blogs. It's really bad. So I believe that there's an interesting story behind um, how you got your, your first job at Macworld. Uh, what is this? Uh, yeah, well, so I guess at a certain point, I sort of developed this philosophy of um, 
I was always used to be very shy and nervous about talking to people. And at a certain point discovered I really liked uh, public speaking, but I was still kind of nervous about just approaching people. But I, I decided at some point that, you know, hey, these these are just they're just ordinary people. You know, all these people, even people you have the, all this tremendous respect for at the end of the day, they're just, you know, ordinary men and women who are, you know, kind of <laughs> like like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I made a big point of whenever I was uh, at, you know, for example, I would go to signings of authors that I really liked. And I would always make a point of like, you know, trying to ask something or talk to them just for a minute um, and so whenever I went to conferences, I would make a point of just going up and talking to people and saying, hello, I'm a fan of yours. And so I think I did that at a uh, science fiction convention in, before I was employed uh, to uh, George R. R. Martin. I just walked up to him and I was like, I really like your books. And he was very nice and we shook hands and we talked for a few minutes and that was that. I was like, yeah, see, that's not so hard. So I had... Um, I'd gone to Macworld Expo, as I mentioned earlier, and I watched a bunch of panels, um, and I would often just sort of go talk to people who, if I enjoyed their panel, I would just go up and say, hey, I really I really liked what you said. I was really interested in this, and talk to them for a few minutes, and it was a really nice experience. Uh, I got to see and meet a lot of people whose names I had known from the print magazine, but I had no idea who they were as people, uh, and one of those people was Jason Snell, and he was on a panel. I can't to this day tell you probably what that panel was about, <laughs> but it was on the uh, our sort of Macworld stage at Macworld Expo, and I walked up to him and said something like, uh, you know, hi, I'm a really big fan uh, of Macworld. Um, I was wondering if you had any job openings. <laughs> and I, I, to Jason's credit, he did not really blink at that. He just sort of said, well, you know, we're starting this new blog, this Mac user blog, and we're looking for contributors for that, so why don't you uh, drop me an email, and we'll see where it goes from there. Um, and thus began an intense period of nervousness in my life as I you know, couldn't wait to get back home. And I, I was like, oh, it was like sort of like asking a girl out on a date. It was like, All right, how long do I wait before I email him? Am I going to look too needy if I email him right away? But I was really like, really like excited and nervous and flustered. Um, and so I got back home. And I emailed him, you know, a couple days afterwards and was like, good, good. That's cool. You're cool. Yeah, yeah. I played it. I played it cool. I played it it cool. cool. Yeah, that worked really well up until the fact I didn't hear a response for like a week. And I was getting really nervous. And maybe my email had gotten lost. Maybe it didn't go through. And so I think I had tried maybe sending another email or something like that. And finally, I actually called the Macworld office and I I got Jason. He picked up his phone and I sort of like haltingly said who I was. And <laughs> yeah, you lost your cool down. <laughs> I totally lost it. I totally, at least I didn't leave like a, one of those messages on the machines like, hi, I'm really interested. Um, but he he said he explained he had been on vacation for like the week afterwards, and I was like, oh god, I'm so awful as a person. Um, and you know, to that to his credit, again, he still hired me after seeing my writing samples, so I feel like I didn't blow it too badly. Um, but yeah, that was a uh, uh, it, uh, I could have done it better. Let's put it that way. If I was doing it today, I'd be way cooler about it. Do you think that this tactic could work in 2014? It's hard. Uh, There's so many. Like, I feel like there's a bombardment of it these days. I don't even know. You know, Jason has some ridiculous number of Twitter followers, so I I don't even know what kind of things he sees on a daily basis. Um, I've had people come to me and ask me about how I got into things or just sort of ask me, you know, both more generally and also sort of like if I'm looking for people. 
Um, and I, I sometimes give people a tryout if they if they approach me because you know, hey, this is where I came from. I, I kind of want to pay that forward. Um, but it, it's definitely tough to stand out from the crowd. Yeah. I I think that the biggest thing is still just writing ability. Like if your writing is good enough, then you have nothing to be scared of because we're always looking for good writers. You can never have enough good writers. Um, but it is still kind of daunting, and there is this, there is so much stuff out there that it's hard to distinguish yourself. Um, and, you know, everybody, what's kind of nice about it at the same time is that everybody can have their own blog or even, you know, these days, if you have a incisive Twitter feed, you know, that, that gets you noticed. People start paying attention if you're saying things that are really smart or clever in some way. Uh, and I think it's still, it's still hard to stand out because there's just so much noise. But I think that the good stuff does tend to still get recognized and, and come to the attention of people who are interested in finding that. So uh, short answer is yes, I think it still works. But I do think it's like anything in this kind of situation, like, like sending in a book to get published. It's very tough and the odds are against you. But if you're good enough and you persevere, you can, you can totally make it. So you mentioned that you're a senior editor at Macworld now, right? That's correct. Uh, what roles have you held at Macworld? Like, have, what, what sort of rank how have you moved up? Um, I started out as an associate editor when I joined in 2007. I had, previous to that, I'd been working, as I said, on the Mac user blog. I was a contributor on the Mac user blog for, uh, I started that in early 2006, probably for six, seven months. Um, and I actually ended up moving up to co-editor of the blog uh, when the other, the sort of Macworld liaison for that, they, we'd had a Macworld staffer who'd sort of kept tabs on us, and he moved to another position at another company. And so they asked me, since I had been doing more and more freelancing for Macworld, if I just sort of helped run the blog. And I was like, sure, yeah, that sounds great. I think they raised my pay to like $10 a post or something. <laughs> so like I was in the money at that point. Um, and so I did that for a while, and then finally I was writing so much stuff for the Macworld website in addition to how much you know I was pumping out for Mac user. And at that time we had another blog called Gadgetbox that was kind of a precursor to our uh, Tech Hive general technology gadget blog um, that they were like, you know what, it's probably just cheaper if we hire you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> I could use health insurance. That sounds great. <laughs> um and so I started in June of uh, 2007 as an associate editor. And, you know, it's weird because my, um, as, my, as my titles have changed, um, my responsibilities have always been kind of weird. I've always felt of myself as kind of a floater. Like I'm here to handle like whatever comes in. I can write news. I can write reviews. I can write op-eds. And so I do a little bit of everything. Uh, and so for a long time, I was kind of in the news department. Uh, and I was, I had multiple bosses, um, you know, at, at various times I kept getting bounced around a little bit, but I was sort of being trained up in the news department and I got to work with people like Peter Cohen, who's now over at iMore and Jim Dalrymple, who's now founded the loop. Um, and they taught me a ton about writing news and calling sources and that kind of good stuff. So I learned a lot from them, uh, in that experience. And I kind of kept going and, and picking up more responsibility here and there, but I, I tried to do a lot of writing, I think was always my goal. So even as an associate editor, I, I went from there to being a senior associate editor, did a lot of more op-ed writing and reviews and that kind of stuff, and eventually made it to senior editor. And now I sort of oversee our news department as well as uh, sort of handling our, our, our op-ed columns and, and our news analysis too. 
do you spend a lot of your time now working with uh, the other properties like TechHive uh, as opposed to just Macworld? I, I don't actually. I, for a while, I was doing some work for TechHive when they first launched it uh, under the moniker of the sort of the TechHive beta blog was when they were first trying stuff out. I did have, I was part of that team and I was there to sort of bring my expertise in iOS and mobile, which was a focus uh, to the group. And I did write a bunch of stuff there. I wrote a lot of stuff on games, on iOS games, because I was sort of interested in that at the time. Um, but as that, as our properties have kind of shifted, and as TechHive especially has defined a new voice for itself, I haven't really been involved with it that much. Um, and I've never really had any direct involvement with PC World or with our, our new Android site, GreenBot, because those are really way, way outside of my areas of expertise. So I, I talk to the TechHive folks sometimes, and you know we... We coordinate when it comes to stuff that's related, that sort of overlaps in our areas of coverage, which often is things like iOS, iPad, iPhone, Apple TV, uh, some stuff with like, you know, they do a lot of stuff on fitness devices, which I think is of interest to uh, people who read Macworld as well. So we try to coordinate and touch base with each other and just sort of know what's going on in those different realms. But, uh, you know, I don't really write stuff directly with an eye towards it showing up on TechHive. Now, I want to take a very quick break um, to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, um, which is the fine folks over at Squarespace. Squarespace are the all-in-one platform that make it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and use the offer code NEARLY100. That's N-E-A-R-L-Y-1-0-0. That's going to get you, if you enter that at checkout, that awesome 10% off. A better web starts with your website. What I love about Squarespace is that their sites are really easy to set up and they're really simple to take care of, develop and manage. They, You can build all of your pages using their fantastic templates as a base and you're able to drag and drop different types of content around your pages. You can easily create blogs, you can easily create galleries, maybe you want a little Twitter widget, an Instagram widget where you can just drag those in, move them around your pages, all within the web browser very, very easily. You can have all of that content pulled in. Maybe you want to start a blog and one day be an awesome senior editor like Dan where you can go to Squarespace, you can set up a blog and you can start writing about tech today and it's all very, very simple to do. Squarespace have 24-7 support through live chat and email, and they have teams located in New York City and Dublin to help enable this. They have plans that start at just $8 a month, and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. All Squarespace plans... All Squarespace sites, sorry, they have responsive web design built right in. So when you've set up your fantastic-looking site, you've chosen all the great fonts and colors and layout options that you want, well, it's going to look fantastic on a desktop, tablet, and phone, and then they make sure that all of that stuff looks great across the board. Every single Squarespace site also comes with the ability to add an online store through their Squarespace commerce functionality. You can sell physical goods, digital goods, all comes right out of the box. You can just enable it. You can disable it when maybe you've sold out of all of your great products too. You can start a free trial with no credit card required and start building your website on Squarespace today. And when you do decide to sign up, make sure that you use the offer code NEARLY100 to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Command Space. So thank you so much to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and this show. Squarespace, that's where a better web starts with your website. So Dan... In the tech press, it would seem that there seems to, like there's a lot of emphasis these days around the exclusive. And having, yeah, yeah, having exclusive, 
uh, access to something, being first, being the first story, you know, hands-on, that sort of stuff. How important is that to you and what you write to, to think about these things? Um, well, everybody likes to have an exclusive because, you know, as we were talking about before, there's so much stuff out there. It's a, it's a great way to differentiate yourself. If you have something that nobody else has, that means they're going to come to you to read about it. Um, and, and that's great if you can get that. But, you know, obviously there are only so many exclusives, exclusives to go around, especially if you're talking about big sort of tectonic shifting ones. Um, for us at Macworld, uh, we don't focus so much on trying to be first with things. We're not really a breaking news organization. I think a lot of our traffic and a lot of our readers, re, you know, come to Macworld because they're interested in sort of more in-depth, long-tail stories that are about how to use technology, how to use the technology they already have. And yeah, they definitely want to know when, you know, when a new Mac comes out or a new model of iPhone, they want to know all about it. Um, and it's important to us to bring that news to them as it happens. But it's also really important, I think more important for us to sort of take our time learning all the things that we can about it so that we live up to the fact that, you know, we bill ourselves as the experts in this. Um, and it's important for us to have that expertise and to be able to say, look, you know, these guys might have, you know, quickly gotten up their story about this being a new iPhone, but we went through all these details. We, you know, cataloged everything we could find. We took the time to answer questions that you guys posed to us via Twitter or, you know, Facebook or what have you um, in our comments, wherever. And we are providing you with the most complete information. So I think it's it's less important for us to be first than it is for us to be, you know, the best source for the kind of information that our readers are looking for. Uh, and so, you know, we certainly don't shy away from doing news and doing especially analysis. I think that's the other sort of angle that we feel that we can bring to it is not just telling you this thing has happened, but here's why this thing is important. Here's what this means. Um, you know, as an example, on the, the day that we're recording this, there was news that the uh, Katie Cotton, who's the head of PR for for Apple, had resigned. And, you know, a lot of places had that that first before that we did. But I think that, you know, my colleague Chris Breen did a great job of writing a story and saying, here's what we're wondering about what this means for Apple, what this means for the press, what this means for consumers in terms of, you know, how that how that impact of this change at the top of the PR department really shakes out. So, yeah, that, that's that's really our focus is is to get you the best most incisive analysis and understanding of these developments rather than just sort of saying, hey, shiny thing, new thing has happened. Yeah, and rushing, rushing, rushing to get a yeah, story. Yeah, I, f I feel like that's it's detrimental, I think, to it because there's so much focus on it these days that people rush to put out these stories before they have all the facts or before they really are able to put it in context. And I think that's the most important thing that we do as journalists is being able to bring a context to these things. It's not about the sort of, you know, breathless anticipation of, uh, of some of this, you know, rumor mongering and, and what have you when there's stories about patents or, you know, that have been filed or uh, company acquisitions or what have you. There's a lot of this, you know, almost paparazzi feeling of we've got to have this because people need to know, need to know, need to know. And, and I think it's, it's really not the best thing for either the, the people who are reading these sites or for the people who are producing them. So that's, that's kind of my personal axe to grind. How do you think that like maybe now and going into the future, like that single person blogs, you know, like people like Sean Blancs, even Hackett, people like that, and then people like yourselves, like Macworld, TechHive, can, can work together. Do you think that there will remain a place for both types of like tech journalism? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
There's a lot of distinctness in what we do. I mean, I think that, that folks like Sean and, you know, John Gruber, obviously, are really also focused on that same idea of uh, not just not just sort of, you know, writing things up as they happen, but curating the best content they could find and really bringing sharp analysis and, uh, you know, really thoughtful consideration of these topics as they come up. Uh, and I think that those, what's great about those sites is they all have really distinct voices. You know, you're not going to confuse, you know, Daring Fireball with The Loop necessarily. I mean, even though they have lots of similar coverage areas and they sort of, you know, deal with a lot of the same topics, they are very distinct in the way that they present things. They focus on different aspects of the experience and they both bring really valuable content, but in different ways. And I think it's great to have those sort of independent commentators. Um, at the same time, you know, they don't necessarily have the capability to bring the sort of deep delves that we do at Macworld that I think we do better than anybody else, which is sort of going into the details of these new products and telling you what does this mean for how the way that you work, the way that you get things done. You know, whether it's something like, you know, we just we we reviewed the most recent update to the MacBook Airs and sort of said, like, here's how these benchmark out. You know, here's our, our review of this. Um, we do things whenever new products break, you know, we do these sort of what you need to know pieces that really go into all the details of what these products, what's different, what's new, what's updated, um, what challenges might you encounter if you're coming from older products. Um, and I think that's, that's the, something we're able to do both because we have the resources in terms of personnel, you know, who really know their individual subject areas because, you know, these in, independent commentators are great, but you can't be an expert on everything, right? So it helps to have a larger staff where you have different people with different expertises they, they can bring to bear. I mean, I know that, you know, if I'm hearing about a new photo app, I know I can turn to Serenity Caldwell and be like, so what do you think about this? How does this compare with the other four apps that you've, you've looked at in this area? Um, I know that if I, you know, want to know details about, you know, hardware specs, I can turn to our lab director, Jim, Jim Galbraith and say like, so Jim, how does this compare to, you know, the, uh, MacBooks that came out last year? Um, so having something, a deep bench, as we would say in, in, in baseball parlance, um, having that at our disposal is really, really valuable. And I think it's something that's difficult to map for or match for some of the smaller websites, but I, I think it's a complementary relationship between the two of them. And, and that's really nice that, that for the readers that they have so many choices and so many options about where to read these things. And how do you feel about comments on the pieces that you write? I know that this is something that um, a lot of people say are great. A lot of people say are terrible. There doesn't really seem to be a lot of people that sit in the middle. Um, how do you feel about having comments open and receiving comments on the things that you put on online? Um, well, maybe I'll be that person in the middle and say, mm -hmm. I, I think it really depends. I mean, there's, there are places that have great communities and you can, you can learn a ton from the comments at some of these great communities. Um, I think things, you know, places like Boing Boing, for example, do a great job of like sort of keeping their community on topic. And a lot of when, when you have a community that's on topic and doesn't stray from things into, you know, deciding to personal attacks or, you know, flame wars, what have you, then there's some really great perspectives that come up in there. And it's always valuable because there are things that you as a writer are not going to consider. Um, and so I've gotten some really incisive comments over time. And certainly I appreciate whenever somebody, you know, points at something in one of my pieces and says, well, did you think about how this impacts on this thing? I was like, oh, you know, that's, that, that can be interesting. Uh, but at the same time, again, as with so much of the rest of the web, the signal to noise ratio is just so, you know, so tough because there's so much out there and there seem to be so many people bent on just sort of filling it up with useless spam or 
you know, furthering their own personal agendas. Um, so for us, we've, um, you know, we've certainly had a community for a long time. We, we did some, we did a changeover not too long ago. We had, we had some, you know, forums that went back a decade, I think, and had a really devoted readership. And we sort of switched over to more of an inline commenting system, which has been interesting. Um, I find that I, I haven't read the comments as much as I have in the past. Um, I don't know if some of that's because our volume is down in terms of how many people are commenting or just because I'm busy and don't necessarily have the time to read comment threads on everything anymore. Um, but I, I like the option of having them there at the same time. I am, I sometimes cast an envious look at folks like Ruber who are able to just be like, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm not doing comments. If you want to respond to me, you can write something on Twitter or write something on your blog. That's fine. But this is my site and my voice and I get to dictate sort of how that's done. Obviously, as a site that's a little less monolithic, you know, with a bunch of different writers, it's it's harder to sort of prevent it, present it as a unified front. Um, and it's it's certainly nice to have a community and have your, your readers get an, an opportunity to respond. But I see some of the stuff that gets posted there and I see some of the stuff that gets said to our Twitter accounts. And there's there's a very vocal group of people who are often just unhappy and want to, you know, grind a particular axe. And um, sometimes I sympathize with those axes. You know, there's been a lot of people complaining to us about autoplay videos on our site. Um, we as the editors, unfortunately, have very little control over that. Uh, a lot of us do not like them either. Um, and we have sort of made that point clear. But, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes those decisions get made over our head. Uh, so, you know, we have to respect that because that's the way the, the business is run. But, you know, doesn't stop us from voicing our own thoughts on the matter when we feel like we disagree. So let's talk about podcasting. So never heard of it. What is it? Is it? <laughs> You're on many shows. You you are the host of Not Playing with Lex and Dan. You are a very frequent incomparable panelist and also a host of Clockwise, uh, the Tech Hive podcast. When did you first become familiar with podcasting as a medium? Oh jeez, I, I it's hard to even think about how I I'm trying to sort of scroll back and identify. I think that some of the first shows I remember listening to was, um, I remember listening to Mac Break Weekly in its very, very early days. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I remember listening to episodes before Merlin was on and then after Merlin was on for a while. And then I sort of, it's sort of my, my ability to listen to it dwindle just because it's very long and I can't listen to it while I'm working. Yeah. Uh, and yes. I don't have a commute because I work at home. So <laughs> it's tough to find the time to carve out for a couple hours worth of podcasting. Um, but I, I would probably say I think I did some stuff for the Macworld podcast very early on when I started working here. Um, I remember being asked, I don't even remember what the issue was, but some news story came out and I was asked if I could interview John Gruber about it and what his Im impressions were. And this was before, I mean, this was in the early days during Fireball. It had probably been around for a few years at this point, but it wasn't, you know, huge at that point. But he was well known within the Mac circles. Um, and to me, I, I remember thinking, wait, you want me to just call up John Gruber and ask him something? Like, like should I try to get Jesus on the phone while I'm at it? <laughs> um, it, was very, it was very intimidating to me because I, did not, I knew him sort of by reputation. And I think maybe he'd linked to some of my stuff, but I, I didn't know him, know him. Um, and I think that was the first time I ever spoke with John, which is pretty funny. Uh, and that was so I just I remember having to set that up and record it and being sort of you know it, then it's sending off my sound files and they got slapped into this bigger show that got put out uh, and that was probably one of my earliest experiences actually producing a podcast I did for a while run a podcast when I was on Mac user I remember around the same time they started the Mac world podcast or a little thereafter I decided you know our Mac user blog should have its own podcast so I took it upon myself to start recording 
and uh, editing and publishing a, a podcast that we would put out uh, every week or so that was it was on the shorter side, but it was probably like you know an hour, 45 minutes or an hour or something like that with uh, you know three or four of our contributors. And I remember writing the, uh, I wrote the theme song for it in GarageBand, which I still like to this day. It's still stuck in my iTunes library somewhere, and it comes up every once in a while on Random Shuffle. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a good theme song. I wonder if I can reuse that. <laughs> um, so I did, we must have done, I don't know how many episodes of that. I don't think that you can even find it anywhere anymore, but there's probably 20 or 30 episodes of that, maybe, maybe some more. Um, and I didn't really get into regularly podcasting until... Until I think Jason started The Incomparable, which at this point was in 20, I guess it was in 2010. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was my first experience in sort of doing really, really regular podcasting. I, I, ha- I have all these like little projects squirreled away that kind of ha- I take on for a while and then they die. My friend uh, Tony Sindelar, who is a uh, occasional panelist on The Incomparable as well, and I, um, we used to be one of those blogs I mentioned earlier was called uh, Doombot. It was just sort of a place for my friends and I to put some random thoughts. And we started a podcast there that ran maybe 12 or 13 episodes. Um, that was just literally, it was, I think, around the same time that um, You Look Nice Today came out, which is another one of those podcasts I listened to very early on. And we were like, oh, that's kind of funny. I just like kind of the uh, the stream of consciousness of it. So we we started just doing these nonsensical podcasts where we talk about random things like uh, – uh, cryptozoological creatures and Dungeons and Dragons and food and all this random stuff and we would sort of cut it up into these little segments and publish this little 20 minute podcast every once in a while and that was a lot of fun but it was kind of unsustainable in the long term unfortunately and you mentioned The Incomparable uh, how did you get involved in The Incomparable and what, what do you do on the show um, well, I was, I, I'd say I was part of the sort of inception of that, um, which came out of a Twitter com, uh, conversation with, um, Jason and a few of the other folks who started out on the panel. I think Glenn Fleischman and Serenity Caldwell and, um, a few other folks. And we were just sort of talking about science fiction books and we sort of lamented that there was no, uh, forum for us to just sit around and talk about these things because we really enjoyed reading science fiction books and we wanted to compare notes. And so, you know, at some point it devolved into a conversation about maybe it could be a podcast and there was something about Zeppelins and (laughs) um, Jason took it upon himself to start this show. And, you know, we were all really interested and, you know, we bounced around different names for it and stuff. And I think eventually they settled upon the incomparable because they, uh, Greg Noss, who's an occasional panelist and runs our website, owned the incomparable.com from a, you know, abandoned project several years ago. Hmm. So they're like, oh, how about the incomparable? We're like, all right, that sounds interesting enough. And we sort of, uh, you know, started out recording about books. And was, it was very interesting in those early days because it was way more freeform. Like in that first show, I think we probably talked about like a dozen books, right? And these days we now try to focus in a little more on subjects. I think we had a entire show where we just, you know, we basically took apart all the works of Joss Whedon in like a one hour show. And it's like, oh, it turns out we probably could have spent more time on that. Um, so it was, it was really kind of an ad hoc thing and a grassroots thing, which I, I think makes it so awesome is that there were all these people who just, you know, we'd all become friends via things like social networking and had a lot of fun talking to each other there. And so we just sort of, you know, combined to create this 
podcast out of nothing. And Jason did a, a lot of great work and spent a lot of time editing it. And it did, you know, very well. And it's turned into sort of a, a thing on its own right now, which I, I certainly as a original panelist, and I think unfortunately, as the person who's on more than anybody except for Jason, um, I'm really proud of it and, and what we've accomplished with it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I, I'll hope to keep doing it for many years to come so and now we have spinoffs too so <laughs> that's even yeah. more fun <laughs> so there's a bunch of shows over at the incomparable.com now including total party kill which is, i am a fan of oh really you're one of those people that's that's great we i i had somebody come up to me at macworld expo because i think i joke frequently about like who are these people who are listening to people playing dungeons and dragons on the internet and a guy came up to me at macworld expo i was like i just want to let you know that's me i really enjoy the show and i was like well that's that's awesome <laughs> i'm always psyched to hear that people listen to it and enjoy it i just it kind of boggles my mind that people do listen to it just because i feel like it must we're having so much fun it's hard to imagine people listening along at home having as much fun as we are um but it's it's super gratifying to know that people actually do listen and seem to have a lot of fun and are interested in what happens and like cracking jokes i saw we were recording a incomparable episode and we have our little irc chat room open at the time and someone made a recurring joke from total party kill in the incomparable chat room i was like man this is really catching on there's sort of a cross genre appeal here so that's super fun yeah, I've never even played Dungeons and Dragons, but for some reason I enjoy listening to you guys play. Well, maybe that'll turn you into a player. I don't know. I, I feel like a couple people have mentioned, like, you know, especially people who used to play uh, when they were younger uh, have mentioned, like, well, this is so much fun. Why did I stop doing this? Maybe I'll go out and, and start playing again. And, and as someone who plays at home with, you know, friends in person, as well as with Total Party Kill, um, it's just, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a great way to get a chance to sort of hang out with my friends and sit around and shoot the shoot the breeze and this and stuff like that so um yeah if we make a few converts among the listeners then i feel like that's uh that's very very gratifying for me and so i want to talk about not not playing so not playing with with lex and dan which is a a show that was recently moved to the incomparable.com yep um where did the idea for not playing come from well, uh, it's pretty easy to point the finger at Lex Friedman on this one. Um, we had a running joke for a long time when when I worked with Lex, and uh, he would occasionally show up on The Incomparable, but the difficulty with getting him on The Incomparable was always like it seemed like all these things that so many of us considered touchstones as part of our culture, uh, you know, movies or or certain books or what have you, he just he, he hadn't seen them. Um, and we, it sort of became this running joke that every time a movie would come up, and Lex would, you know, just sort of blankly stare at us. We'd all, you know, go, Lex hasn't seen it. And so for a long time, there's been a, you know, a running joke about, you know, having turned this whole Lex hasn't seen it into a, into a show. And so we had batted it around with Jason for a while at a certain point. And then it sort of, you know, it was kind of rough. And we just sort of were thinking about what we could do with it. And Lex and I finally sat down at some point decide you know, you want to do a podcast let's do a podcast and uh, at that point we we didn't really feel comfortable doing a tech related podcast since that was something obviously we were doing for work um but we really liked the idea of doing something more cultural and and the movie thing obviously having been a running joke for so long seemed like a cool idea so um i think we you know it was about a year ago that we started actually you know in earnest working on this and we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we're going to record it. How do we want to do it? Do we want to produce, you know, this sort of uh, mystery science theater style running commentary? Do we just, you know, record our sort of thoughts and, uh, you know, what we took away from the movie after having watched it? 
And so we eventually settled upon this dual strategy where we would talk a little bit about the movie, which was uh, pulled from a pool. We, we made this giant spreadsheet you know, or Google Docs list of uh, movies that we hadn't seen. And, and the key was really for us to be movies that we hadn't seen that it felt like when you said, I haven't seen this, someone would go, how could you not have seen this? <laughs> um, so, you know, Lex hasn't seen some of the Star Wars movies. Um, I haven't seen some of the Godfather movies. Uh, and it sort of it makes a nice uh, complementary list because there's not a ton of there's definitely overlap but there's a lot of things that are uh, separate and so we said well let, let's do a structure where each of us gets to bring movies that we want to watch with the other person um, that we've seen but they haven't and also we'll bookend our our first season and we had always intended to do it as a season um, with movies that we both haven't seen and so. We ended up doing this dual strategy of releasing, you know, we talk a little bit about the movie beforehand, you know, if we hadn't seen it, what do we know about it? Um, and then we would sit down and actually just watch the movie and just leave the mics open and sort of talk and crack jokes as we watched it. Uh, and then at the end, we'd spend some time just sort of talking about the movie and what we felt about it and whether we liked it, you know, whether we thought it was interesting. And and that was it. And we were lucky enough to have our first season hosted by Boing Boing, which was great. They were awesome and they really provided a lot of uh, opportunity to get that that show in front of people um and then with the second season which we've just started we're we've moved to the incomparable just because obviously we have such a close relationship with jason um it was really you know we'd always kind of considered it a spinoff of the incomparable because the whole lex hasn't seen it meme started there and um you know being able to work closely with jason and the incomparable there we felt like that was a great relationship for us and we really wanted to be able to take advantage of it fully um so yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun to do. Um, we're really looking forward to finishing out our second season over the next uh, couple months, and being able to, especially for both of us, being able to see more movies that we really feel like we should have seen in the first place. It's quite a time commitment. Yeah, it's not not easy, especially when you consider you know we both have obviously other things that we do, not just other podcasts and work, but you know Lex has a has a family. I have a lot of commitments outside of work that I, you know, play on some sporting teams and I, you know, do other podcasts and I, you know, try to ostensibly get some of my own fiction writing done too. So maintaining those things is definitely takes up some time when you're trying to block out two and a half hours during a week to watch a movie and report, record a podcast. But it's especially now that Lex has left math world, I really, I really kind of treasure those moments as cheesy as it might sound because I don't get a chance to talk to him as much as I used to. I mean, I used to spend a lot of time with him. We used to collaborate a lot when we worked together. And so for me, it's a, it's a great opportunity to just sort of catch up with him. We can each like open a beer and sit back and watch a movie and, and just sort of shoot the breeze. And I think that's, that's a, it's, it's kind of a dual purpose for me. The fact that everybody else gets to listen to it if they want to, that's, that's almost kind of a secondary uh, <laughs> motivation for me. Mr. Moran. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Well, thank you, sir. It's been a, a real delight, and I was glad that I was able to be here. Where can people find you? Uh, these, these days, it's harder to avoid me. Um, well, I obviously write a whole bunch at Macworld.com. Um, my personal Twitter feed is at dmorin. And you can also find, when I do update my blog, as I said, I'm, I'm rather terrible about it. It is at danshotfirst.com. Um, and obviously on all the many, many podcasts that we have mentioned today. 
If you want to find the show notes for today's episode, which also have a bunch of links to everything that we discussed, go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 95. My name is Mike Hurley. On Twitter, I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much for listening to episode 95 of Command Space. I'll be back next week. Thanks again to Dan for joining me, and thank you for listening. Until then, bye-bye.